Join journalist, host, and amateur detective Ben Baskin as he goes on an intrepid quest to solve various sports mysteries in Lost in Sports, a new podcast from Religion of Sports and PRX. In every episode, Ben will explore the mysteries of the lost, the forgotten, and the disappeared. And you'll never know where his journey will take him as he chases down answers to some of the biggest questions in sports history, some you never thought to ask. Lost in Sports is now streaming wherever you get your podcasts. Some kid was like, yo, you got to go into foot action or foot locker, and then you tell him you want the secret video. That's my brother, Sam. He's four years older than me and has always been much more in the know. So I went to foot action and I was like, am I really going to ask him? I was like, can I get this secret video? And he's like, you want the mixtape? Yeah. It was 1999. And I was nine years old when Sam came home with that tape and slotted it in our VCR. And that's when we found out what the secret video actually was. Hey, y'all about to view the N1 mixtape. Back one, back one, bring it back. It was like free flowing. It was freestyle. No look passing, dribbling between the legs. Breaking people's ankles, throwing sick alley-oops. It was just like basketball in the way that you had never seen it before. The And One Mixtape, a grainy VHS tape filled with highlights from streetball games in New York City and set to a hip-hop soundtrack. And it had me and my brother, white kids from suburban Connecticut, dreaming about playing at Harlem's Rucker Park. Just everything about it was like so different than we had been taught to like, this is how you play. And it's like, nah, this is how I want to play. The tape blew up and then another came out. And then another. The players went on tour, and it quickly became a worldwide sensation. You have people chasing the bus, girls crying, pulling off jerseys, trying to take off sneakers. We traveled the world. We in Paris, baby. We shut it down worldwide. The German sausages is, is good. Everybody came out. Rappers, golfers, NFL players. They all came to see us. I do remember walking through airports with these guys. It was like walking through the terminal with the Beatles. In that moment, in that time, they were rock stars. For over a decade, I've wondered, how did And One, a small basketball apparel company that made t-shirts and sneakers, turn streetball into a global phenomenon? And how, seemingly overnight, did it all disappear? The number one question of all time still to this day is, what happened? What's the answer? I don't know. (laughs) That's the thing. But that's why I'm here. You are the investigator, because you're investigating in everybody. I'm Ben Baskin, and this is Lost in Sports, from Religion of Sports and PRX. I'll take on some of the biggest questions in sports, and some you never thought to ask. Every episode, we'll explore the mysteries of the lost, the forgotten, and the disappeared. And we'll go on a quest for answers. Today, the And One Mixtapes. When I was a kid, my life revolved around basketball. I watched, I played, I dreamed about basketball. People often turned my last name, Baskin, into a play on basketball. And the And One Mixtape? changed the way my brother and I looked at the sport. I put it on and I remember seeing some guy just dancing up the court and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, why am I practicing shooting free throws? 
The first tape featured a New York streetball player named Rafer Alston. He was skinny and graceful and dribbled with a style that was more poetry than basketball. And as the years went on and more mixtapes came out, they introduced us to new streetball legends and new moves that we'd try to recreate to mixed results. I hit some kid in the face and broke his nose. I had to go to the principal's office. They didn't believe me that it was a move. They were like, why would you throw the ball off of Brian's face? I was like, I guess you haven't seen the mixtape. Brian, wherever you are, I get it. Because Sam would also hit me in the face with the ball. I was so bad at throwing the ball off people's heads, huh? We never did get to play at Rucker Park, but I knew that's where this story really began. The Rucker Park is like Madison Square Garden, Shea Stadium, Yankee Stadium. It was the Mecca. That's Duke Tango. Along with his partner, Al Cash, Duke has been the announcer at Rucker Park since the 80s. Oh, baby, thrown away, comes up, oh, baby. It's yours truly, Duke Tango, coming at you live. Awfully imitated, but never duplicated. That's me, baby. I'm out cash. I do what I do, he do what he do. And y'all love what we doing. Every summer, the best streetball players in the area would come to the Rucker to compete in the Entertainers Basketball Classic, the country's premier streetball tournament. People from all over the city would wait hours to get in, and those who didn't would hang off trees or climb the fence just to get a view of the action. That place was like a rock concert. Somebody gets dunked on, forget it, it's a wrap. People are throwing things in the stands, they're jumping out of the stands. Oh no! Oh, did you just see what happened? You gotta be out of here. Yo, he just got blazed. He just got posterized. Even NBA players from Wilt to Dr. J to Kobe showed up to compete. And celebrities would stop by just to watch or sometimes even sponsor their own teams. We attracted everybody. You had Jay-Z, Fat Joe, 50 Cent, Mary J. Blige, former President Bill Clinton. So basketball was invented in 1891, meant to be an indoor game. And those indoor spaces were often segregated and excluded black players. Streetball was meant to be played wherever you could find a court. And where organized basketball emphasized fundamentals, Streetball was all about style and creativity. As we grow up, we find a connection, you know, almost a spiritual connection to this game. That's Scoop Jackson. He's a longtime basketball writer, journalist, and cultural critic for ESPN. When you are raised in this country and your history is rooted in restriction, those places that we created outside became sanctuaries to us because that's the only way you can express your freedom. It was as important as going to church. Streetball had thrived in black neighborhoods for decades, but there was no mainstream attention. It was a culture largely untouched by outsiders. And that meant something. This is something we could always claim is ours because we created it, we started it, and we have control over it. Always wondered, damn, why doesn't anybody else besides us feel the same way about it that we do? You know, I wish the world could get to see this because this is special. In streetball, anything was possible, and anyone could become a neighborhood legend. If you were good enough, you could even be reborn and given a new name. If you played streetball, you had to have a nickname. And one of the other rules are you can't nickname yourself. Tango and Cash provided those nicknames. And in the early 90s, they bestowed a teenage point guard from Queens named Rafer Alston with what is still their most famous one. 
he was dribbling the ball. And then all of a sudden, he starts skipping and skipping and skipping. I jumped up out my seat to say, ladies and gentlemen, forget about it. His name is Skip to my Lou. When he got the ball the next time, here I go. Just a skip with the ball. Look at Skip. Oh, my God. Skip, pull back. Jump shot. Good. Skip to my Lou, my darling. And we got used to sing. Skip, skip, skip to my Lou. Skip to my Lou, my darling. And that was the beginning of Skip to my Lou. Most legends become legends after the fact. Rafer became a legend before the fact. That's Ron Nicolario. He was Rafer's coach at Cardozo High in Queens and is the winningest basketball coach in New York history. We're 16 minutes away from being Queens champs or once again Queens jumps. And Rafer was his greatest player. As a fifth grader, it was clear that Rafer was going to be special. He became a Rucker Park legend as a teenager, regularly taking on and embarrassing adults eight years older than him. He was so good at the Rucker that Ron Nicolario often gave friends his camcorder to record Rafer playing there. But Ron didn't want him to only be known for streetball. I didn't want, at the end, him being skipped to my loo without the world knowing Rafer Alston. It was almost like Superman and Clark Kent or Batman and Bruce Wayne. It's not an easy path, and many streetball legends don't make it. But Rafer made it out. He played for two junior colleges and then transferred to Fresno State. Then, Slam Magazine put him on their cover. The headline, the best point guard in the world you've never heard of. And that magazine got passed around the offices of an up-and-coming basketball apparel company. And one. And one was a bunch of really young guys wearing t-shirts and basketball shorts and having more enthusiasm for doing something that none of them knew how to do than was actually warranted. That's Erin Cecil Smith, Anwan's first director of PR. She remembers when she met the company's founders for the first time. They came into our conference room wearing trash talk t-shirts and sneakers. And I was kind of like, wow, you do not give a shit. And I was right. And One was started by three kids fresh out of college, two who had met at UPenn's Wharton Business School. And it was built around one premise. They'd be a company by basketball players for basketball players. And former And One employees told me the company had one goal, to be the number one basketball brand in the world. But to compete against companies like Nike, they knew they had to be edgy and authentic. Basketball was the culture. It wasn't ingrained in the culture of N1, it was the culture of N1. What we became known for in the industry was the company that played basketball at lunch every day of the week. People, when they came to interview, they would play. That was part of the interview. You didn't wear ties or suits or khakis. You wore basketball gear because we were basketball players. And One had found early success by tailoring their brand to diehard basketball fans and co-opting basketball streetwear with a line of t-shirts that sported trash talk slogans. Things like, I'm the bus driver, I take everyone to school. Then they added baggy shorts, started making sneakers, and began to sign NBA players as brand sponsors. And they had been keeping tabs on Rafer Alston. So when he was drafted into the NBA in 1998... And one wanted him to be a part of their brand. So they called up his former coach, 
Ron Nicolario. We signed Rafa. You know, we'd love to try to market him. Do you have any film of him in high school? Uh, you know, I have some. And I said, I have some other tapes that I think you're going to like of him playing outside ball. They really weren't too high on it. I said, listen, I think you should take a look at some of these tapes. That's how And One got the footage that would become the first mixtape. Blind luck. And when And One saw a teenage skip to my loo on the Rucker Park court, it's no surprise how they responded. It's pretty beat up tape, and it's still just absolute gold. When the tape was on, we would page skips on in the lunchroom. Everybody would jump up from their desk, run to the lunchroom, and try to cram in 50 people to be able to watch the tape. You knew it was on because you could just hear people going, no, he didn't. Everybody would run in and be like, what was it? You'd rewind it and watch. The phenomena of introducing people to the skip tape was amazing. Whether they were NBA players or somebody's kid, the reaction was the same. Played again, played again, played again. It was magic. Now, it's worth mentioning that nearly every one of the 30-plus people I talked to had a slightly different story about what happens next. Many former and one employees told me it was their idea to turn this Rafer footage into the first mixtape and to market it to kids like me and my brother. But the tape sat around their office for months, used only as lunchroom entertainment. What you're dealing with is you've got a lot of different stories, but I'm not getting paid right now, so <laughs> I'm not going to just stick to the party line at this point. There's no reason. That's Alex Boguski now one of the most celebrated ad executives in the world. By this point, And One had grown large enough that they'd hired his company, Crispin Porter and Boguski, the agency behind the creepy Burger King King and the Truth anti-tobacco ads. They saw the Rafer tapes too, and pitched And One on turning it into a grassroots marketing campaign. But at first, they were soundly rejected. They didn't want to be streetball. Being streetball for them was something they were semi ashamed of, didn't really like, and wanted to move past. He says the And One founders had dreams of grandeur. They were stuck on the idea of overtaking Nike. And to do so, they figured they had to leave their edgy origins behind and become more mainstream. At one point, Boguski remembers one of the And One founders telling him, No kid is ever going to wear a sneaker because some streetball player wears it. And I said, they will if that player is famous. And so it's our job to make them famous. Eventually, And One relented and gave Boguski's team the green light to edit the Rafer footage into a highlight tape that celebrated streetball like nothing else before it. We had to make an aggressive move away from this pretty, beautiful, perfectly lit world of basketball. We don't need to be pretty. We need to be gritty. And let's go do that thing and make streetball as famous as professional NBA ball. Then a DJ named Set Free who worked with the brand had the idea to give the tape a hip-hop score, finding tracks from then-underground artists like Mo's Death, Jizza, and Common. And the first And One mixtape was born. Ooh, oh my goodness, did you see that? And One, okay. But And One didn't actually license the footage and couldn't legally sell it. So they came up with a loophole. They gave the tape away for free in stores like Foot Action and Dr. J's. And to get it, customers like my brother often only had to try on an And One product. For sending the tapes, the company paid Rafer's former coach, Ron Leclerio, $2,000. Was it dirty pool on And One's play to take a naive 
young coach like Ron DeClario and Milcom, or were they just oblivious to what I gave them? And one also never got Ray Ferrelson's approval to make the tape. He didn't even know about it until it came out. He declined to talk for this story if he didn't get paid, because he said he was tired of not getting compensated for his own story. But an old friend of his, Ronnie Zidell, relayed a message from Rafer. In Rafer's view, it wasn't really done in its proper form or the right way from the beginning. Even Rafer said it was like kind of all underhanded stuff. Like he loved N1, but they never called to ask him about it. The N1 mixtape was out, but he was not signed to N1. He was not getting paid. He was not getting apparel. But for And One, that didn't matter. The skip tape, as it's often called, was a hit. Stores were completely sold out. Copies were even being illegally bootlegged and sold on street corners. And the tape's success led to a very natural next question. All of a sudden, we realized that we have just created a monster. And that monster was the need for content. Oh my God, what are we going to do? We have to go create the environment in which players like Skip might show up so that we can get them on tape. But it was a stroke of good luck that landed that first tape in their lap, and they still had to get their arm twisted to even make it. So how'd these guys turn streetball into a worldwide sensation? Those guys didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know anywhere in New York. That's George Stork, a Harlem native deeply rooted in the New York streetball scene. When And One decided that they needed to find more streetball content, one of the And One founders remembered that he had played football with George in middle school. So he called him up. Here's what we want to do. We want to get a film crew. We need you to take them around. And if you can, get us footage of just streetballers wherever you need to go in the city. George acted as a liaison, introducing the And One camera crew into his world, a world that was understandably a bit hesitant to allow a bunch of white guys from out of town to film them. But George knew exactly where to go and who to talk to. And through a series of introductions, And One soon met the man who changed everything. Our Linden, New Jersey. Let's welcome number 23, the man! Man. How you doing? This is Wally Dixon, a.k.a. Main Event, certified streetball legend, pioneer of the And One Mixtape Tour. Wally Dixon, known as Main Event, was one of my all-time favorite And One players. He was from Linden, New Jersey, and was an All-American in high school, and a top recruit. He'd go on to play at Rutgers University, but got expelled for academic reasons after only one season. But back home... Main Event became a Rucker Park legend. He was the king of the alley-oop, soaring through the air and then throwing down dunks from all angles. I was more like a freaky player, like, well, you don't know what are he gonna do. I could take a regular layup and might tap the backboard, windmill, and dunk it. Well, I wanna do something out here that they remember Wally Dixon. When And One met Main Event and watched him play, they made a proposition hand over your highlight tapes, and get featured in volume two of the And One mixtape. He was intrigued, but Main Event had a different idea, a streetball game at his home court in Linden, New Jersey, with all the best players he knew playing in it. I could bring five of the best streetballers together that's not the NBA to represent your brand. First person I called was Shane Drew Machine. Shane called Half Man, 
half man called aircraft. After that, we called future. Maybe a month or two later, headache came. It would be the first ever and one mixtape game. And George Stork was responsible for getting the other players to the park. We get in the limos and we get out there and everybody's just having a good time in the limos and just kind of bullshitting and laughing and trash talking. But when we got to the corner of the park and we made the turn and we saw all those people standing out there, like the whole limo just got quiet. And it was kind of a collective, oh shit, this could be really big. The fans stretched around the court, standing three or four deep. And while everyone was waiting for the limo to arrive, a DJ spun tracks and main event put on a dunking exhibition to entertain the crowd. At one point, leaping over a motorcycle. It went phenomenal. And then the only way it ends, and is the way you want it to end, especially with streetball, is the cops shutting it down. That shit was perfect. The game made up the majority of the next mixtape, Volume 2. When it was released, it was another huge win for the company. But then Main Event started to think about his own path and the path of all streetball legends. When a person said a streetball legend, it just meant that uh, he or she wasted their talents. They didn't go nowhere. They didn't do nothing with it. The road to the NBA was not common and not easy. Rafer Alston was the exception to the rule. It's a journey often paved with obstacles. The upbringing, the challenges that they face in their community, which I call the inner city ills, brothers' drugs, violence, poverty. For those guys, after they didn't make the standard path to the NBA, they were out of options. So Main Event convinced And One to take this show on the road. He figured a tour would give himself and his friends another chance to get seen by scouts and maybe play overseas. Wanted to be one of the ones to help not only the culture, but to help another avenue where you could continue to play something that you love to do and take care of your family and make money. The first tour was only five cities, and it was pretty simple. Aaron Cecil Smith drove the players around in a Ford Expedition, looking for neighborhood courts where other streetball players reigned. They went city to city, stapling posters on telephone poles and popping into barbershops to ask where they could find local talent. I meet you at a 7-Eleven or a Wawa, and I'd be like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Uh, where they play ball at? We just roll up, old school, grassroots. Yeah, we got next. It was just pure joy, you know? Nobody bought a ticket. Nobody was waiting for the popcorn guy to come up and down the aisles. This was all about the game. Our model was, we'll play anybody, anywhere, anytime. We were sitting in some broke-ass courts, and the bleachers were full. You ever heard these stories about, like, when Dr. J used to play at the Rucker, and people would be in trees, and they would be hanging off the buildings just to get a good look? Well, that was exactly what it was like. That's Chris Palmer. He was a basketball writer at ESPN and also the author of the Ultimate And One book. And he joined the tour in the summer of 2000 and witnessed the players become famous in real time. After the game, everybody rushes the court and trying to get autographs, and they don't even know who these dudes are. The New York streetball legends on that first tour had all played college ball. Sure, they did tricks and had style, but they were real basketball players playing to win. That would soon change. Because as the tour made its way around the country, a man named Philip Champion was sitting in jail in Atlanta. Until he wasn't. 
Only thing I hear is them calling my name. Philip Champion to the front. Philip Champion to the front. I'm like shocked. Like, who the hell know that I'm in jail? Champion was told that he just got bailed out. He was confused. But when he made it outside, an associate for And One was there waiting. When he got me out, he said, you about to be famous. I said, what you mean famous? I'm like, how can I be famous if I ain't going to the NBA? And he was like, nah, I'm about to go on tour. That's it, a little basketball tour. Champion had barely played organized basketball before, but he used to dribble on street corners in Atlanta, offering dollar bills to any kid who could steal the ball. And in that city, he was known by a different name, Hot Sauce. Now, from Atlanta, Georgia, wearing number three, let's give it up for Hot Sauce! Enter Hot Sauce, this flashy dude. He had the braids, he was cool, all the ladies loved him. Like, Hot Sauce wasn't a basketball player, he was a showman. The day after getting out of jail, Hot Sauce was playing for And One in LA, and he was a paradigm shifter. He didn't follow the rules. He traveled and double dribbled. But that didn't really matter because nobody ever could dribble the way Hot Sauce could. Handling the ball was a hobby, but breaking ankles was my job. He could take on anybody and embarrass the shit out of them. If you came to an N1 game, all you wanted to see was Hot Sauce break somebody down and do that shimmy. The idea that he would make the basket was irrelevant. I'm having fun while everybody playing serious. I'm just going out there doing what I do back home. For Hot Sauce, having fun sometimes meant that after he crossed the defender over, he'd just throw the ball into the stands and start dancing. It certainly wasn't the same style of basketball that Main Event played. But when the next mixtape came out, Volume 3 catapulted And One to a new stratosphere of popularity, and Hot Sauce was the new star. The next year of the tour was much bigger. 21 cities, a giant tour bus, more cameras, and many, many more fans. We pulled up one place on the tour bus, and there were hundreds of people out there. And the game wasn't for two days. Even the players were shocked. They were along for the ride just like we were. Like they were amazed at everything that was happening. And then when the ESPN show came in, that's when they became basically global superstars. In 2002, ESPN turned the tour into a TV show. Now they had multiple tour buses and the games were often moved from outdoor courts to college and NBA arenas. They even got their own video game. Hundreds and hundreds of people coming up to me. Numbers and pictures and girls going crazy. Give me your headband. Give me your do-rag. <laughs> Not my headband. I do remember walking through airports with these guys. And it was just like walking through the terminal with the Beatles. I love you guys. I love you guys. They captured the imagination of a nation. People who were uninitiated in terms of streetball were indoctrinated from these N1 tapes. The second season of the ESPN show introduced a new element. In each city, And One held an open run where fans played against each other, and the And One players then voted on who would get to play against them in the real game. Some would even get to join the team on the road. I saw they were coming to Portland again, so I went up there and, you know, I had nothing to lose going to try out. Grayson Boucher was from Kaiser, Oregon, 
about 3,000 miles from New York City and not much of a basketball hotbed. When I first saw the N1 mixtapes, I absolutely thought this is a whole new world. Every time I took to the court, I'm literally trying to play like I'm on the N1 mixtape tour. So in the summer of 2003, when the tour stopped in Portland, he knew exactly where he'd be that day. In that open run, there's about 500 to 1,000 people trying out. I remember the first time I got the ball, I like went between somebody's legs or something. The crowd went nuts. And then next thing I know, going against my idol, hot sauce, he actually crossed me over and I slipped. <laughs> and then I think the crowd enjoyed that I didn't back down. You know, I went right back at him. After the game, Grayson was hanging out in the locker room, getting ready to go home. He felt he had already achieved his dream of playing with and one. But then... Main event comes in there. And he said, hey, we're trying to pick who's going to go on tour with us. And we've selected you. And he just kind of like pointed to me. My jaw has dropped. I'm just floored. Like, what? I'm going on tour? Or on TV? That day, he was also christened with a nickname. From Portland, Oregon, wearing number zero, let's give it up for Grayson Bruce, the professor. He said I was schooling people on the court, but then also I think he thought I looked like a professor. A few weeks later, the ESPN show came on and I was hoping to be in the episode. Maybe if you press pause, you might see me. But then I was like the star of the first episode. I'm like, what? I'm just excited to play with hot sauce. Alamo, all these dudes I've seen on tape. It's just like a dream, you know what I mean? ESPN must have realized that the introduction of The Professor, a white kid from Oregon, into this world made for really good reality TV. For the rest of that season, the main storyline was the professor fighting to keep his seat on the and one bus. I'll do whatever it takes, man. Well, that's what I gotta do, I'll do it, it's fine with me. And at the end of the season, there were three players left and one spot. That first summer, it was myself, Helicopter, and Spida. I actually didn't think that I could win because Spida and Helicopter were actually both kind of better basketball players than I was. You're talking about guys who could 360 windmill, I mean, it was nuts. But in the season finale, it was the professor who was handed the N1 jersey and given a contract to be a part of the team. He immediately quit his job bagging groceries. It was clear that the tour was no longer about finding the best players. But the professor brought in an entirely new audience, providing hope to white kids everywhere that they could be a part of streetball. And the next year, the phenomenon went global. We went everywhere. Tokyo, Japan, Philippines. Australia, New Zealand. Peace out from the Philippines. We went to Saudi Arabia. We sold out. I would say our popularity at that time was more on par with NBA All-Stars. Professor, And one was now bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And because of the global popularity of the mixtape tour and the show, no other brand was influencing the sport more. Fame was fun. Life was good. Everything was just getting better and bigger and more successful every year. So what the hell happened? You're not able to keep your eye on every ball because all of a sudden, five balls became 500 balls, became 5,000 balls. And we were not too big to fail. It took 10 years and it took street ball. It took the mixtape tour for Sports Illustrated to pay attention to N1. In 2005, over a decade after the company was founded and a year after the tour had gone global, and one landed the cover of Sports Illustrated. The headline, The Other Game, How a Tiny Shoe Company Happened to Start a Basketball Revolution. For and one, 
This was mainstream legitimacy. And let's be clear, it was the streetball players prominently displayed on that cover. Not the trash talk t-shirts, not the and one sneakers, but the professor and main event. And what I thought I was going to feel was, wow, this is the best professional day I have ever had. And instead, it was the day that and one was acquired. That's right. The same day that And One landed the cover, the employees found out that the founders had sold the company to a conglomerate called American Sporting Goods. And we all spent the day waiting around to find out who was going to get fired and who wasn't. That was literally the worst day of my life. And when Erin Cecil Smith met the new owner, she was shocked. She says he clearly didn't understand the ethos of the company. I walked into the new leader's office and I said, I know that you're going to fire me. I don't want to sit on my ass all day. So fire me now. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not ready to fire you yet. I'm like, you know what, fuck it. And I took my corporate card and I sent an email to everybody and said, drinks are on N1, let's go. And we walked out of the office. Was that the end of N1 as you knew it? That was absolutely the end of N1 as I knew it. The new owners bled and won for all it's worth, turned it into a mass-market Walmart discount bin brand. Nobody I talked to could answer why the and one founders sold to someone who was obviously going to destroy their company. Aside, of course, for the money. It was definitely a punch in the stomach. We were a family. Being acquired meant the family is breaking up. But really, for and one, there had been problems festering for years. Remember, And One never wanted to be a niche streetball brand. They wanted to be the number one basketball brand in the world, to be a billion dollar company. But they never got close. Again and again they tried to expand, but all that growth just ended up destroying what made them special in the first place. It went from this ultra cool thing to being commodified. Anybody could buy it, anybody could wear it. It was no longer a movement, it was a product. Early on, wearing and one meant you were in the know, like my brother. It was a brand for basketball diehards. But as the mixtapes got mainstream and the company got bigger, I started to see the worst basketball players in my school wear and one, the kids who got cut from the team. It's hard to remain an edgy, counterculture brand when you start trying to market to everyone. But it wasn't just the business that was affected. The mixtape had the same issues. The last few years of the N1 mixtape tour, which I had nothing to do with, was the most successful part of the mixtape tour from a commercial perspective, from a profit perspective. It just wasn't the success that some of us wanted to see. And it became a vicious cycle. You know, we went from an expedition and me and the guys in each city to, hey, we need a tour bus. And then all of a sudden we need three tour buses. Every season, it got more complex, it got more expensive, and it got a lot more corporate. As profit became the lodestar, the tour became less about playing basketball and more about satisfying sponsors and increasing television ratings. Even the name of the ESPN show was commodified. Streetball, presented by Mountain Dew Code Red. Discover a sensation as real as the streets. Every choice and one made had real-life impact on the streetball players and the culture that main event cared so much about. It was being commercialized. It was watered down. It was no longer street basketball. 
it wasn't about winning no more. It wasn't about the community no more. It wasn't about opportunity no more. And Main Event says that worst of all, the style of basketball itself had shifted. No longer did an and one game reflect the creative freedom of streetball at Rucker Park. Now, it was looking more and more like the scripted antics of the Harlem Globetrotters. Once they started doing different things like that, Danny could fit into the category of culture vultures. Main Event started the tour to showcase streetball and get real streetball players opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. But as the years went on, And One was bringing more showmen onto the team. And as a result, they began to actually lose games. How you claim to be the best street ball player that never made it when you dancing? We showed you real ball. Buckets. Game. Win. We want to win the game because our credibility is on the line. Some guys was just playing and doing moves because they know that the tape was going to get edited and they're going to put their best highlight onto the TV show or the mixtape. There was a clear divide. There was the original crew all real basketball players and streetball legends well before and one. And then there was the new era, the guys who knew how to entertain. That latter group was led by Hot Sauce, who would become the main headliner. And he believes that putting on a show was what the tour was all about. I give the people what they wanted. Y'all trying to go to the league from this shit. <laughs> like, nah, I ain't, I ain't trying to go to the league from this shit, man. I'm trying to make most money I can before it stops. But main event often reminds me that the original mantra of the team was that they'd play anybody, anywhere, at any time. He took pride in that. But at some point, he says that changed. But main event isn't blaming hot sauce. He's blaming the corporate executives that got rid of the referees and sought weaker competition to help make the show basketball players look better on TV. We might go to a McDonald's and a dude... Telling them that he don't play basketball. And they like, nah, come down, go to the open room. We definitely gonna pick you. Bruh, I make the best burger and fries. I don't play, nah, just come down. Come on, man. I've seen it all that crap. At first, ESPN and And One actually leaned into that divide and played up the conflict as much as they could on the show. And it was a hit. The players were reality TV stars. They were the only reason kids like me and my brother knew or cared about And One the only reason we bought the clothes. And as the company's sales surged, some players started to feel like they weren't being compensated fairly. I will always tell Ann One, I said, I never want to get to the point where I feel like a paid slave. Skip, AO, Hot Sauce, main event, you know, those guys should have been paid what the NBA players were if, if it was just based on value that you're bringing the company. The professor's dad negotiated his first contract. And some of the other players didn't have anyone to act as an agent or a manager. Often they signed whatever was given to them because this was the only avenue to make a real living playing streetball. The only thing that's saving them is that there was no blueprint. So being that there was no blueprint for us, there wasn't a blueprint for them. And one had three original founders. Tom Austin was based in Asia running the sneaker line. He had nothing to do with the mixtapes left the company in 2002 and was happy to talk to me. I would have loved to know how the other two founders, Seth Berger and Jay Cohen Gilbert, would have responded to the players' grievances, but they declined to participate. And after they sold the company, the new and one owners didn't meet with the streetball players right away, and they started to believe that meant the worst. When they sold a company and a new company didn't sit down with us, that's when I was like, yo, it's time for us to bounce. So the team split up. Guys like The Professor and Hot Sauce stayed with And One, but Main Event and the original core players started a new tour called Ball For Real. 
it barely lasted a year. And the new look and one tour didn't fare much better. From a showmanship team chemistry standpoint, it just, it wasn't that same type of magic that that original crew had, you know? And then in 2008, just three years after And One had sold the company, ESPN pulled the plug. The show was canceled and so was the tour. And the players' bank accounts started dwindling. The tour gone and then next thing you know, the 80,000 turned to 70,000. 70 turned to 60. So I let go of my place in Oregon. 60 turned to 50. I let go of that Benz that I was driving. 30 turned to 10. I didn't have the money to pay my bills. The next thing you know, you, you got 5,000 in the bank. I personally went actually completely broke. I found a box of like 70 to 100 jerseys. I was like, screw it. I just started slinging them on eBay. I sold them all and I lived off that for five or six months. Over the years, many former And One employees parlayed the company's success into high-paying jobs at other companies. Many even have some variation of helped create the And One mixtape tour in their LinkedIn bios. But the players who actually built the tour, they had nowhere else to go. It got to a point where there was literally like no demand for streetball in the United States. Streetball don't come with no 401k. So what are you gonna do now? Main event became the driver of a Dunbar armored truck. Now he works at a water treatment plant in his hometown of Linden. Hot Sauce was the halftime entertainment at Atlanta Hawks games for a few years. He spends most of his time now training his high school-aged son. The professor is the only one who turned his and one days into a lucrative second career. He became a social media star with over 12 million combined followers. It's actually the closest thing left to making a living as a streetball player. And it just took off, and next thing I know, it's like, wow, this is a full-time business. This is making way more money than touring. It does feel that the career that the professor has built out of this is a valuable result of our work. But in some ways, I also wish it weren't a white kid from Oregon. You know, it should have been all of them. Not that anyone is directly faulting the professor. And Scoop Jackson even says that what And One did is no different than what's happened with so many other aspects of black culture in America. As you see it grow, as a black person, you're like, oh yeah, we've seen this story before. And One is no different than most other entities in this country when it comes to black creativity building. it, And large sections of white America coming in, swooping in, taking it, stripping it apart for what it really stands for, and then leaving it, and leaving us by the wayside with it. And as the years have gone on, the memory of And One has faded. But the imprint they made on how basketball is played around the world remains. That's evident every time you watch an NBA game today. Had I not watched the mixtapes, would I love ball handling and being creative and having a flair? Probably not, actually. That's two-time NBA MVP Steph Curry, a man credited for changing the way basketball can be played. Curry splits the defense behind the back, fires a three. Oh, he puts it in! What a Steph also grew up on the mixtapes and the tour, and he says so did pretty much every player of our generation in the NBA. The N1 mixtapes inspired him, just like they did my brother and me. Except he managed to pull the moves off just a little bit better. It just made me want to have a ball in my hand and be in the gym. Oh, and one popped in my head. I'm going to go get a ball and go to whatever gym, whatever court, and work on some of the stuff that they were doing. That is the indelible mark that and one has left 
on the basketball committee. Sure, it's faded and people might not remember it, but it will always be there. None of these guys are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Maybe they work in regular jobs now, but so what? That's okay. That's perfect. But the moment that they had made you imagine and it made you believe something could be possible on a basketball court. And pretty much every player I talk to, on the record or off, doesn't regret their and one time. Sure, they have many complaints and things they wish had gone differently, but they loved the N1 mixtape tour, just like I did. Five or six times a month, I'm getting messages from people all around the world saying how you know, we got them involved with basketball and they helped them stay out of trouble. Like I say, for me, I'll do it all over again. Some things might be different, but uh, it's all love. I talked to nearly a dozen former And One employees. They loved And One and still believe in the original vision for the company. But they were a bunch of kids who launched a brand that exploded, and they couldn't manage that growth. It breaks my heart that there are people who have bad feelings about And One. We fell short of the mark in a lot of ways, but we never, ever intentionally tried to hurt basketball. It's a difficult thing to do. Look back at the damage something you loved might have caused. When I was a kid, watching those tapes with my brother, I never thought about any of this. I saw something new, something cool, a culture I wanted to emulate. But it wasn't mine to copy, and certainly not to change, like And One did. It didn't mean to me what it meant to guys like Main Event. 20 years later, he's still trying to find a way to recreate his original concept for the tour something he's now calling the Blacktop Streetball Association. So sure, the And One mixtape tour is no more. And maybe it shouldn't be, at least not the version it became. But while some might say that Streetball is now dead and that And One helped kill it, that's not entirely true either. For me, and for millions around the world, Streetball is much less visible since And One stopped promoting it. Just like it was before And One stumbled on it in the first place. But just because we're not watching, that doesn't mean the culture is not still there, thriving on its own. And one does not and did not define playground or street basketball. They just put their brand on it and put a name on it. So while it may be over for them, it's never over for us. When people say that streetball is dead, the first thing that comes to my mind is that they never lived the streetball life. Streetball would never die. It would never die. On the next episode of Lost in Sports. Everybody wanted to attack me because I got rid of the video. I didn't get rid of the video game. NCAA did. How the hell can they own your name, image, and language? And they say forever. The ball's on these people. If you want to learn more about Streetball and where it's played, we've been working on a new project with Apple Maps. So check out the And One Apple Maps Guide to find a court near you. This episode was written and reported by me, Ben Baskin. Our senior producer is Kate McAuliffe. Iggy Manda is our production assistant with production support from Megan Coyle and Devin Manzi. Tommy Bizarian from PRX Productions is our engineer. Editorial support from Michael Garofalo and Jessica Pupovac. Our executive producers are Gotham Chopra, Amith Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman. Special thanks to Alex Bernard, Alexander Wolf, Chris Evans, Dennis Page, Jeff Roth, Jeff Smith, 
Justin Cups, Keith Kreider, Kenneth Shropshire, Mandy Murphy, Michelle Young, Finn Barnes, Rick Tellender, Stephen Sestilli, Tom Austin, and Tony Gervino. Lost in Sports is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. If you like the show, please leave us a review and click follow. And if you have your own sports mysteries you want me to solve, leave me a voicemail at 914-893-2870 or email me at lostinsports at religionofsports.com. This is yours truly. You've just been listening to the D to the U to the K to the E to the T to the A to the N to the G to the O. When taking that next jump shot, make sure it's over your opponent and not at your opponent and it's nothing but the bottom of the net. See ya, because I don't want to be ya. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good night.